This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Find us over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. I'm a country boy with the soft side. My heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never made anyone quite as beautiful as you. I'm your host, Rudy Gets It. I'm here to inspire you to get out on the trail. You putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you still on the couch? Come on, let's go on a backpacking trip. I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. But next on the Cascade Hiker Podcast, what's your name and where are you from? I'm George Parker uh, from outside Redding, California. All right. Well, hey, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a chore sometimes to get a hold of people, especially in the hiking world. And Can you kind of describe where you're at right now? Uh, right now, um, I'm in the mount, uh, kind of in the foothills, uh, Cascade foothills in Northern California. I can see Lassen Peak from where I'm at right now. Um, I'm about 35 miles uh, east of Redding, California. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's that's fun to be able to interview somebody that uh, I mean is quite literally just staring at mountains. What, um, where do you, where do you normally what, what do you do, George? Um, I am a trout hatchery manager for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, I've been doing that for a few years now, and um, I and, you know, the whole time I've been in California since about 1986. Uh, I, I came out here to check out the mountains in the forest. I moved here from Illinois. Uh, I thought I was going to be here for a year or two, have an adventure and then go back home. And I got here and found out about a program called the California Conservation Corps. And it's uh, it's kind of a youth development program. Uh, I say kind of a youth development because it's for 18 to 24 uh, year olds, which is a little bit older than you would think of for youth, but it, it, uh, yeah. it gives them a job and teaches them some skills. It's a one year program, uh, teaches you how to get up early, get to work on time and put in an honest day's work. And when I was with the, the CCC, I found out about the Backcountry Trails Program. And that's a special program of the seas where they hire every summer, uh, they hire about 90 corners uh, to go out and do trails work in the mountains of California, all over the place. They usually have a couple of crews in Yosemite, one in Kings Canyon National Park, and then scattered around national forests all over the place. Stanislaw National Forest, which is in the Sierras outside of Lake Tahoe, uh, the Trinity Alps, which is in Northern California between Redding and the coast. And they hired uh, trail workers to go out and basically live out of a backpack for five months and work on trails. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So who are the people they hire then usually? You know, when I was in, in 1987, it was strictly a CCC program. Uh, so you had to be in the seas to join. But in the early 90s, when AmeriCorps was started, AmeriCorps is a federal works program, and the CCC partnered with AmeriCorps. So now about half of those 90 corners can come from anywhere in, in the United States, really. Um, and, and, they, and, and they do. Uh, I've met some really interesting people in the last few years that I've been covering the Backcountry Trail Program. Uh, people from Washington State, uh, people from Maryland, people from Maine, literally all over the country, and sometimes all over the world. There was a guy on a trail crew last year that I met, uh, he's an American citizen, uh, but I think he's got dual citizenship. He was in the Israeli defense force before he joined the seas. So literally people have, who have been all over the world. Oh, that's amazing. That's fun to, to kind of dive into that world and, and meet people with so many different life experiences. What, uh, what type of work are they typically doing? Is it just all over the board? 
Um, it's all trails work, and uh, there's several different types of trails work. Usually, the crews will start the season off doing trails maintenance, which basically um, you got your day pack on your back, and you've got a rock bar and a shovel, a small hammer, a rake, and a pair of loppers, and you head up the trail, and you do maintenance on the trail. So you're digging out drainage swills. You might be doing some minor rock work, fixing water bars. You're lopping uh, stuff that's growing into the trail right away. And the objective when you're doing trail maintenance is to cover as much ground as you can as fast as you can. Um, it is a work program, so you're expected to work hard and keep up a steady pace. And you can cover a lot of great country that way. When I worked in Yosemite, we did trails maintenance all over the entire south end of the park. We did the whole Pohono Trail. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Yosemite, but the Pohono Trail goes along the south edge of uh, Yosemite Valley. So it starts at Inspiration Point, which is a place that has a Vista Point that looks up Yosemite Valley and you can see Half Dome and El Cap and everything. And there's a trail that starts there. It goes up to the top of the, the uh, valley wall and it goes for miles along that entire south edge of Yosemite Valley and it ends at Glacier Point. So we did trail maintenance on that whole thing and we had to knock that out as fast as we could. Um, the other type of work that you're going to be doing would be rock work, and that's doing dry stone masonry. Um, you're building walls, steps, um, re retaining b bars out of the, uh, the natural materials that are there, a lot of, a lot of granite. And so you're, you're building walls. You're learning how to do some simple construction, and you do it without any kind of concrete or mortar. It's all got to be fit together and and they're really tight. Uh, this rock works expected to last for over a hundred years. Yeah, that's really impressive stuff. And I've seen things like that out on the trail and you just kind of <laughs> think to yourself, holy crap. And can you kind of talk about the fact that, um, you know, are you, you're, what kind of tools are you using with the rock exactly? Because I think a lot of people are probably thinking, oh, they helicopter all these rocks in here and it's just real easy. No, the rock is all from right in the area. So the first part of the project is um, figuring out exactly what it is you need to build. You kind of have a rough idea of how much rock and what size you're going to need, and you scour the area for the rock that you're going to be using in the project, and you roll those rocks down to where you need them. And uh, <laughs> trail trees have a technical term for that. It's called piss anting. You got to piss ant <laughs> a lot of rock down to where you need it. <laughs> And so you, you want a lot more rock than you think you're going to need. So you have a selection of rocks to work with. So you get your rocks down to your work site um, and then you're going to dig a foundation out. So you're using uh, shovels for that and you're using rock bars to move the bigger rocks around. Uh, granite weighs 150 pounds a cubic foot. And you're using some pretty big rocks when you're, when you're doing this stuff and you want your biggest, heaviest rocks, in the foundation to give you a solid footing to build everything else on, especially if you're doing some like multi-tier wall. And so the rocks have to be placed together and they have to be shaped. Uh, you want a flat side that's facing the outside of the trail or the outside of the, the, uh, the, the mountainside, wherever you're working. And the rocks have to fit really snugly together. So sometimes you're chipping rock off to get them to, to, to fit together. And you're using a small, they're called single jacks. It looks like a sledgehammer, but the small ones are only a couple of pounds and you're using that to shape the rock and you need a high contact towards the front. And there's a technique and a skill to getting them all to fit together um, so that they don't fall out. And everything that is laid has to pass a kick test. Uh, when you get like a tier of wall done, 
the supervisor is going to come by and he's going to kick your rocks. And if anything moves, it's not good enough. You need, you need to keep working on it until it's in there solid. Um, so you're using rock bars, shovels, single jacks, uh, double jacks, which are what regular, regular people call sledgehammers uh, to crush <laughs> fill. And so, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, rock working hand tools. Those are, those are what you're using most of the time. And you, uh, the, one of the main reasons I think a lot of people don't understand is not only do you need that solid on there for, of course, the hikers coming through, but you're also planning for those, uh, you know, so that this can last through some winters as well, right? Exactly. It's supposed to last. The, the, uh, the design intent is that they want it to last at least 100 years. And so it needs to be pretty solid. And, you know, the rock work has evolved over the years. When I did it back in 1987, Everything was pretty much straightforward wall construction. You laid your foundation and then you laid your next tier of walls and you had to break the joint, which means that if you're looking at a brick wall, you'll notice that the seams that go up and down don't line perfectly up. It's staggered between levels and that gives strength to your wall. Um, I guess over the years, they realized that if with that kind of solid construction, if for some reason a rock should get knocked loose or come out because um, there's a lot of harsh conditions that these walls and structures have to live through. There's going to be a lot of snow. There's going to be a lot of frost, a lot of temperature change, a lot of rain. And sometimes a rock could work itself loose with the regular construction. If one rock comes loose, that's going to weaken your whole structure. Well, I've discovered from talking to cormorers over the last couple of years that they've they're going to something called dynamic construction and you're still breaking joints, but it's not as nice and neat and stacked as the walls that I used to build were. Um, it looks messier, but it's designed so that if one rock comes out, it still maintains its structural integrity. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, like how much weight is estimated to sit on some of these, these spots up in the mountains with snow? Uh, you know, I don't know how much weight, but you could be talking 20, 20 feet of snow in the high country. Uh, the, the crews, the crews can be working at altitudes from sea level. If they're in big basin state park in the redwoods on the coast by, uh, by Monterey, all the way up to 10,000 feet in the high Sierras. And so um, the coast trails are going to get more rain, wind, that kind of thing. The high countries, they're going to get a lot of snow, and that snow can be around for a while. And there's avalanches that can happen, and there's a lot of force behind the avalanche. When you have 20 feet of snow coming you know, 150 yards down a hill, that's a lot of speed. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you have any experience with this, but I know um, I was working. We didn't have nearly enough time to do this section of trail on the Pacific Crest Trail a few years back. Um, actually right in uh, the Mount Rainier area. And I was, uh, I, it was a big shale, uh, slide. And when that stuff comes down, it'll cover the whole trail. And when oh, yeah. you, when you mentioned trying to get in and find the base, the dirt, um, that can be really hard with shale. Oh yeah. Yeah, it can. Um, and yeah, you can. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that stuff just slides. I mean, you you try to move one, and the whole hill almost starts sliding around. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it is. Uh, some of the places uh, where these crews are working, 
uh, can be pretty intimidating physically. I talked to some climbers last year who were on the a crew in the Inyo National Forest, which is on the east side of the Sierras, right due east of Yosemite National Park. And they were working, building some wall on some really steep switchbacks. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the basic topography of the Sierras, but the Sierras are a big plate that was lifted up out of the ground. And so when you come from the coast, you have a nice gentle grade going up to, well, relatively speaking, gentle grade going up to the Sierra Crest. And then when you hit the crest, it's, it's like you, you go off the edge of that plate, and it's really steep uh, on the east side of, that, of the crest, and that's where Inyo National Forest is. And some of these switchbacks were so steep that the crews were learning how to do fall protection, and they were roping in while they were building their rock walls on these switchbacks in Inyo. Oh, wow. That's weird yeah. to think about. Huh. Well, what, uh, was there any, uh, any, uh, good stories you had other than the, <laughs> just the absolute hard work? Was there any, uh, over the years of doing that kind of stuff? Did you run into anything crazy out there? Um, I, I don't know about crazy. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually working on a memoir right now on my time in the seas. going to call it oh. tentative titles Yosemite too. And there was one night that was unforgettable. Uh, a couple of crew members, my boss and I went and we spent the night on Amelia Earhart Peak. It's in Yosemite and it's just under 12,000 feet. And we were going to spend the night up there. And my boss was just full of stories. She had run a crew a couple of years before in Inyo, which is right across Lyle Canyon from where we were camped. And so she was telling us about the places that she had worked and the history of all these peaks around us. And it was just a fascinating time. Uh, and then the clouds moved in. And so it got dark kind of quick. We couldn't see very much, but we were just going to spend the night up there. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night and the clouds were all gone. And I looked up and the stars were just absolutely incredible. It's uh, to say a starry dome sounds cliche, but that's exactly what it is when you're in the mountains at night. You look up and you just see all of these glittering lights that you just don't see from anywhere else. And and it, there's, a, there's a depth to it. And it, if you look at it hard enough, it feels like you're falling up and you can get a sense of vertigo. Mm. And I started getting dizzy and looked over the edge of the peak where we were on. And I looked down into the canyon that was next to us. And this canyon, at the head of the canyon was Ireland Lake. And the canyon had been carved by glaciers thousands of years ago. So this canyon had a lot of really smooth glacial polish that went down from the lake out towards Lyle Canyon. The glacier was all gone. The lake and the really smooth granite were all that was left. Well, when I looked down... On Ireland Lake, the full moon was literally making all of that glacial polish in the valley, in that canyon floor, sparkle in the moonlight. Mm. It was incredible. I mean, you wouldn't think anything like that could happen, but but it does. And the only way that you're going to see that stuff is to get out on the trail and go see it. Wow, that's such a cool moment to be in. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, um, I was kind of reading reading on uh your facebook page for your yourself i guess um and you had posted something very recently 
that said, uh, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And uh, yeah. I've talked about that with the podcast as well, because when I started doing this, there wasn't a whole lot of people doing just straight interview for hiking. And uh, exactly. And so, yeah, it just it kind of rang true for me as well. But is that uh, is that really what uh, is really behind your book? Exactly. You know, I mean, um, working on the memoir has led to a blog and a podcast of my own, the CCC Hardcore. And all of that was because I kept looking around for people to write books about their stories. There've been thousands of people through the program. Um, the CCC has been around since 1976. The Backcountry Trails program has been around since 1978. And so thousands of people have gone through the program and you would think that some, somebody would have written a book about it by now. Well, nobody has. <laughs> wow. And I wanted to read that book. And so I just, I read that quote and I said, well, I guess I need to start writing. <laughs> <laughs> Then the book, the, the book led to the blog, which led to the podcast. And so, yeah, it's been a pretty cool trip. And I got reconnected with the backcountry program back about three or four years ago. Uh, it was the first time I made it back to debriefing, which they have every, at the end of every season down at Camp Mather, California. And uh, when you're on a backcountry trail queue, it's like you're, you're joining, you're joining a family. Uh, they, Louis Lamore had a quote in one of his books, uh, they said trail dust is thicker than blood, and mm. that's really true on on trail crews. And it it doesn't matter what season you did; it doesn't matter where your season was at. Um, you form a bond. It's almost it's almost as strong as like somebody's been through the military or something like that. Um, I was listening to. Well, I I interviewed the director of the the backcountry trails program, a guy named Carlson Hubbard, and he was talking about uh, an event they have at their orientation. When you sign up for the backcountry, the orientation is in April every year, like the last week of April. And then you're in the mountains until the end of September and debriefing every year is always the last week of September at Camp Manor. And I was talking to Carlson at orientation and he was talking about um, people bond so quickly into their crews. Um, they have a night, um, they have an evening program every, every night and they get the crews together, and one night they talk about something that they appreciate. And he said, it's a, it's a pretty emotional thing. And he, he said, one person said, you know, I've only been here for three days, and this is the first community I felt accepted in for who I am. Oh, that's cool. I mean, right, right from the beginning, there's a lot of bonding there. But then the reality is the next morning, when after that community meeting where everybody's bonding and there's tears and it feels good and you know, it, it might sound kind of sappy, but that, that, that bond is real. The next morning, you're going to be loading up into the vans and you're going to be heading out to the parks and the forests and you're going to be going to work. You know, you weren't hired to be part of a summer camp. You were hired <laughs> to do a lot to, to, to work. And so tomorrow you guys are going to work and you're going to earn everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Well, that's a, like you said, I mean, that, if, if everybody's working together real hard and that just ties that bond even more. It does. Yeah. Um, and for part of my interviews, I, I ask, uh, what, what, what happened during the summer that you didn't expect or what was the hardest part of the summer for you? And everybody expects the hard work. Everybody expects the miserable conditions, but what, a lot of people don't expect is having to get along with the same 17 people all summer long for, you know, five months and having to learn how to 
adapt to everybody's individuality, how to adapt uh, what are normally considered shortcomings. People either learn how to improve their shortcomings or everybody else has to just learns to live with it and adapt. And uh, you really, you really um, bend it, uh, bond together as a family. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, you have a real passion for the CCC. Um, How did you end up doing the fish hatchery stuff? You know, one thing led to another. It all started with the fees. Uh, I thought I was going to be here in California for a year and go home back to Illinois to work in a machine shop. Uh, one year, in that first year that I was here, I joined the backcountry, went back from back to the, my center, Del Norte Center, was on the coast over at the mouth of the Klamath River, um, in old uh, Air Force housing at an at a Air Force, at a radar station that they didn't need a lot of the. Uh, residences for anymore, uh, became a crew leader there, uh, which is kind of like an NCO in the program. You can promote to crew leader or specialist, which is kind of like an NCO in the military. It's, you're not really an officer. You're, you're like a lead worker. Um, and then from there, I got a job with National Park Service in Kings Canyon. So I actually did two trails crew to two trail crew seasons. Uh, then I went back to school, got some school, um, went back to the seas as a, you know, limited term C1, got hired by fishing game as a seasonal and just kind of going back and forth, working my way up. And what I thought was going to be a one-year adventure has turned into a lifetime career doing natural resources in California. Wow. And what, uh, what, what's going on with the trout hatchery? What exactly do you do there? Uh, we, we raise trout. It's a, it's a put and take hatchery. So we, we put trout out in the water for people to catch and enjoy. And so we plant waters all over Northern California. Um, we plant Eagle Lake, Shasta Lake, um, a lot of creeks and stuff. Uh, a lot of creeks you've probably never heard of all over the place. <laughs> so we, <laughs> so we, we put fish in the water for people to catch. And you guys, do you guys put 100% of the fish in, or do you guys have anybody uh, help you do that, like, for say, like, uh, hard-to-get-to uh, lakes? Uh, you know, at, from my hatchery, we plant all of our own. Uh, other hatcheries do uh, air plants, like Mount Shasta Hatchery provides a lot of the air-planted air fish. And uh, the department has a twin-engine plane that will go around and do air plants into high mountain lakes. Uh, sometimes... Sometimes Mount Shasta Hatchery is assisted by like a uh, backcountry horseman um, to, to take uh, milk cans with fish back into some high mountain lakes. Yeah. What about, the, do you know much about the, the plane drops? That sounds really crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually got to go on one once. <laughs> um, there is a big, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it. It's like a big bin. It's in it's in the fuselage of the plane, and it's got compartments. And I don't remember how many there were. It's like four across, maybe eight long. And so they they know each lake has an allotment. And so before each before each flight, uh, the pilot has an itinerary. We're going to hit these lakes this time. So they actually weigh out the correct number of fish that are going to go into each lake. And so the pilot's got a chart with them that says right now, um, like for instance, 
Um, day one is going to go to Heart Lake. Day two is going to go to Emerald Lake. So you, you fill all those up. They got water and fish. Um, in the bottom of the plane, there is another holding container and a chute. So as the plane is approaching the lake that it's going to drop into, the pilot consults his chart. He knows which bins that he's got that have to go in for this lake. He opens up the bins that the fish are actually in and it drops them into the lower bin. And then he drops low and slow over the lake that he's going to be planting. And then when he's sure that he's at a good spot where the fish are going to hit the lake, he hits another button and that opens up the chute to the outside of the plane that drops the fish into the lake. Now the fish have to be a certain size to do this. If they're too big, they're going to hit too hard and, and, and they aren't going to make it. So you're talking fingerlings. And the fingerlings just kind of float down into the lake, and and uh, a, a lot, most of them are, are going to make it, and they're going to be fine. Wow, <laughs> that is crazy. And it's 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 pretty cool flying because they usually it depends on the winds, it depends on a lot of conditions, but they usually approach it from come go flying up canyon, and it's pretty wild because you have to they have to fly low and slow enough that stall buzzer is going off almost constantly. And so it gets pretty exciting when you hear that stall buzzer going off and, and the pilot's just kind of hitting it. Yeah. Yeah. We got it. We got it. We got it. And then he hits the salvo button and then it's full throttle and pulling up and away from a Canyon wall. That's a pretty wild ride. Yeah. It sounds like it. Wow. Um, going back to the CCCs, um, I'm kind of curious, like where the funding comes from and is there any, um, threat to that funding at all? Uh, the, the funding, it, it, I am, it's paid for a lot of it's out of the state budget for the state of California with the CCC's annual budget. And when they went into partnership with AmeriCorps, AmeriCorps pays for a lot of it. Uh, so, so some funding comes from them and the parks where they work actually pays for the work to be done. So like Yosemite national park pays the CCC to have so many hours of trail work done in their park over the summer. Now, sometimes funding isn't always there. Like normally there has been a trail crew in the Shasta Trinity National Forest at the Trinity Alps. This year, the National Forest didn't have the budget for it. A lot of their money, from what I understand, um, got taken up by fires last year. So they didn't have as much discretionary money this year. So this year there wasn't a CCC trail crew in the Trinity Alps for the first time in like almost 40 years. Uh, but they did find other work somewhere else. Um, I think, I think that crew worked in the Stanislaw national forest this year. Um, so some of it comes from California state budget. Some of it comes from federal AmeriCorps programs. And uh, some of it comes from the national park or the national forest or wherever it is that they're working. And when they're out there, you say for like five months, are they typically, the once they get contracted to an area, do they stay in that same area typically, or do they bounce around? It depends. Uh, last year there was a Yosemite crew that only moved once, uh, and other crews move around a lot. Sometimes the crew will start like at Big Basin uh, State Park, which, is, like I said, is on the coast, and they'll spend three weeks or a month there, and then they'll move up to maybe the Yola Boli National Yola Boli Mountains. Um, I don't remember the national forest that it's in, but it's like Southwest of Red Bluff. Uh, 
and moved there for a few weeks and then moved up to the Stanislaw National Forest. So there, there could be some camp moves that, that involve travel between places in California. Wow. And how are they getting food? Uh, when they're in the backcountry, they get resupplied once a week, usually by mules or sometimes by helicopters. Uh, Kings Canyon National Park uses helicopters alternately with mules. And so uh, Yosemite National Park has a huge mule operation. Uh, I haven't verified this in a long time, but when I was there in 1987, Yosemite National Park had the biggest mule operation in the world. They just had uh, a a lot of mules. (laughs) Uh, Kings Canyon has some, they alternate with helicopter. And uh, when you get over like the Klamath National Forest, I think they do uh, contracts with private packers to resupply the crews. But most everybody's going to get a mule train come in once a week with your food and your mail and any tools or equipment that you need. Uh, mail comes in once a week. Any mail is, that you're going to send out has to go out on that same mule. Um, and so the food is really good in the backcountry. Uh, you're getting resupplied once a week. So you've got a, a lot of fresh produce. You've, you've got a lot of fresh stuff. So, so that works out really well. The food is almost always outstanding on a trail crew. Yeah, that's always a plus. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Did you uh, do you have a website or where should uh, people go try to find you? Um, they can find me at ccchardcore.com. Uh, that's my blog. And the CCC colon hardcore, and that's C-O-R-P-S dot com. Um, that's the blog and all the podcasts that I do are going to go through that blog too also. Yeah, um, I definitely recommend people to go check those out. They're a lot of fun to listen to, and um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just all kinds of different people and different Thanks. stories. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and so they'll be recruiting again for next season. Uh, I want to say December, or January is when uh, recruitment opens up. And like I said, uh, half of the people are going to come from AmeriCorps, and people use the seas as a stepping stone to other jobs. There was one core member that I met in about 2015 or 16. Her name was Kim. She had a biology degree and, but she was having a hard time and she was having a hard time finding work in her line that her, in her field that her degree was in. Um, and she had even like organized a short term uh, research trip to the Galapagos. And so you would think that would count for a lot, somebody applying for work in that field, but she wasn't finding work. She found out about the backcountry program online through AmeriCorps. She joined. She did a season over in the Trinity Alps. She went back home to Washington State. And between the education and the experience on a trail crew, she got on as a seasonal with Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, She worked as a seasonal for a couple of years, and now she's an environmental scientist with the state of Washington. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yes. So it, it can lead to good jobs. Yeah, what a great program. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, right on, man. Well, um, anything else you need to get off your chest? You know, the uh, I was going to give you the CCC websites. Um, uh, <laughs> a lot of places are getting really long and convoluted names, <laughs> uh, web addresses. So it might be easier if somebody's interested in looking. Just Google CCC Backcountry Trails. Backcountry is one word. And the first thing that's going to pop up is the CCC program. Um, 
the, the actual web address has a bunch of backslashes and a lot of hyphens and a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Easier well, just to Google CCC backcountry trails and, and I'll send you the links to those too. Yeah. Send me the link and I can throw it on the show notes. So people can click right through there. Um, sure. Well, right on, man. Hey, George, we've been talking for a long time uh, prior to this about getting together and chatting. And um, I really like listening to you and, and you've, you've got some great stories and I wish we would have talked earlier, but I'm glad we, glad we got this taken care of. It's great. Well, thanks. I'm glad, too. I've been listening to your show since I discovered it when a former backcountry core member was on your show, Kelly Kate. Oh, Warren. yes. Yep. You talked to Kelly Kate a couple of times, and she's a former backcountry core member. Uh, backcountry cook. She cooked uh, on trail crews for a while, um, and she's working as a backcountry ranger this year over in the Trinity Alps. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she was fun. Well, And so were you. Yeah. Th- thanks again, George. Well, thank you. All right, that's the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to join the Patreon page. Find me at patreon.com slash Cascade Hiker Podcast. Also, hit me up uh, with an email, Rudy at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. Find me on Facebook. My Facebook page is Cascade Hiker Podcast. Twitter, find me at in underscore Cascade Hiking. And I'm Cascade Hiker Podcast on Instagram. Thanks, Whiskey Fever, for letting me use this track here, Tall Grass, off their album, Gonna Wake Up This Whole Town. Go find them at ReverbNation.com slash Whiskey Fever. Hey, see you next week. You were sweet like honey on a heartbeat. You were fine like wine and sunshine. I could feel you coming on strong. Could never be wrong. Could never be wrong. See her laying down in the tall grass. Playing mandolin in a white dress. So come running when I hear that song. It could never be wrong. It could never be wrong. Where you wanna run, baby, I'll run too I would leave this world for a beautiful girl If I could...